Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your hosts, Natalie Kavorik and Tara Vanderdusen, and together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a mix of entertainment, facts, and trending news articles in the ag and food space. We're ag like you've never seen or heard it before. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Kim Stackhouse-Lawson, who is director of Ag Next and a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Prior to her time at CSU, Kim was the director of sustainability for JBS, and before that was the executive director of global sustainability at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Kim received her PhD in animal science from the University of California, Davis, and was a postdoctoral fellow at Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine Beef Cattle Institute. Welcome to our show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I think where we want to start is actually having you share a little bit about Ag Next. I feel like as I've researched this, and I know I've talked with you, we've obviously met in real life, and it's a little bit different than some of the other like programs at universities. So maybe you could share a little bit about what it is and what you do there. Yeah, absolutely. So AgNext is a new initiative at Colorado State University that focuses on the development of sustainable solutions for animal agriculture. And the most differentiating thing about AgNext is that we are really set up to engage in constant dialogue with our industry stakeholders and partners. And so we have set up a unique way in which our faculty can engage with the supply chain on everything. And that's through our industry innovation group. So we have 12 individuals from the supply chain, and that ranges from dairy producers to banks to cow-calf producers to retail and end users to really help our faculty understand what the most wicked challenges are that the supply chain is facing today in the space of sustainability. And that allows our team to develop research questions in partnership with them, and more importantly, to conduct that research with them. I think it's really interesting how you guys have like just it's like beyond just like research. It's like connecting. It's like that next piece. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense why it's ag next then. (laughs) Like it's like beyond just the research, taking it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely it is. And the other thing that's unique about us is that we complement our scientific team with a PR team. And so then scientists can ask questions that also have the ability to really provide better outreach and communications to a wider range of audiences other than just other scientists. Natalie and I spoke at a conference and we had a person in the audience who was a researcher, like a PhD student. And they were like, how do how do I tell people all this really great ag information I'm learning? And that was like exactly the missing piece he was talking about. He was like, I can write a white paper, but like, how do I get it out to to the masses? It's so funny that you said that, Tara, because that's exactly what I was going to say. I feel like that <laughs> Sorry, I memory must have been like ingrained for us because I do think it's such a big barrier to agriculture. I, one of the biggest questions Tara and I get all the time is like people who want to share online and have these conversations, but they know they're going to come with like questions or needing to like back their sources or have maybe data to support their claims. And the biggest question is like, where do we go to get this? And I know there are so many, you know, you guys for one, but so many other UC Davis and beyond, 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 beyond that that are doing 
doing all this really important research for us, doing, giving us all these valuable numbers and things that we need to go be out talking about to share our story and support our stories. But it's like, how do we get that? And so I think that is so beautiful that you guys have implemented that PR portion to it and recognize like how beneficial that marriage is between the science and, um, I guess almost the emotion, which I listened to a podcast you were on and you said that in there and it stuck with me. But you said that the challenge in the sustainability space is that emotion and science are on even playing field. And I had never, I guess, heard it articulated in that way. And you probably understand that and come from that, you know, preaching that and really feeling it because of how you guys have paired that PR with the science at Agnex. I think we've said science a lot. So one of the things our listeners love is the science. So I think we should just dive right into it. But you can we talk about this paper you did about tips to feed for methane reduction? Maybe give us, you know, a simple rundown on it, your guys's findings, and then Tara and I can kind of interject with some, you know, questions and and field some more conversation around it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, scientists have been focused on additives to reduce methane for hundreds of years because methane is a loss of energy for the animal, right? So so purely biologically, if we can reduce methane emissions, we actually should be able to increase efficiency of the animal if we don't see an increase in hydrogen. So we've been studying additives for quite some time. And there are additives that we use every day that we know is methane. For example, fat in diet reduces methane. Anytime you can make the diet more digestible. So if you take, for example, going from cracked corn to steam flaked corn, for example, that reduces methane. One of the challenges as it relates to to feed additives, the number of animals we have to study to actually demonstrate a reduction. For that reason, feed additive work is actually easier to do in dairy cattle because we're more likely to see a reduction. And so the majority of the feed additive work has been done in the, in the dairy industry in comparison to beef. And so that's something that our team is beginning to explore here at CSU is how can we develop more robust understanding of that confined feedlot system. And then grazing hasn't been studied hardly at all as it relates to methane or feed additives. And we can talk about those challenges as well. And so lots of work still needs to be done in the feed additive space to truly understand what the reduction potential is, and then how scalable the technology is. So do we see any performance you know, improvements or declines What about meat quality? We worry a lot about milk quality too. Of course, animal health and welfare is important. And then what's happening to the producer's bottom line? Are these individuals still profitable? And hopefully, right, if we're going to ask them to feed something extra, they're making money on the feed additive that is entering that, that particular production system. I had no idea there was such big like differences between beef cattle and dairy cattle? Most of the time in feed additive work, it starts in dairy, lactating cows, right? Because they're eating the most, of course. And then it will start to trickle into the beef production system in in the cattle feeding sector. And then, like I said, in grazing, um, grazing is really hard to study emissions on because of the power that's required. So the number of animals, and they could be in an extensive or intensive environment. And then think about delivering a feed additive, to an animal that grazes, right? So not only do they have to choose to come to get their methane measured because they're not in a chamber, right? Or in a bubble or anything else, they're like out grazing, but then they also have to choose 
to eat the additive because they can just eat grass. Well, first off, I think it's very interesting that you say something that I don't think people think about or understand about agriculture. You, The first thing you said is we have been studying this for a long time. And I feel like one of the things is, is like, did you hear about this new thing? This like seaweed we can give cattle? You know, it's kind of like this hot new thing. And I just think it points to how long the ag industry is always doing what we're doing, like whether it's like, you know, implementing sustainability practices or, you know, working to improve certain areas or like investigating different things or researching, experimenting. We just have such a terrible job of explaining or sharing that we're doing it because I feel like this happens to us all the time where we're like, we have been, I mean, you said it, we've been thinking about this, understanding this, knowing this, researching this for a very long time. And yet I feel like I continually see whether it's in the news or someone that's like, oh, this hot new thing, we can do seaweed. Um, And what I found interesting when I was reading through your paper again, just coming at it, I guess, from like a non-research side, just like from the news aspect or where I, you know, conferences or different things. I do feel like seaweed gets a lot of like the attention right now, but you mentioned the NOP4 or 3NOP, 3NOP or something. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Mm -hmm. 3NOP, which I feel like does that even have a little bit more credibility than seaweed even, right? So I would say more research has been done on 3NOP. DSM, who developed the molecule, which has now been sold to Alanco here in the in the U.S., so it'll be an Alanco model here, they have done millions of dollars worth of research. And I would say they're further along than seaweed slash bromoform in that research model. So we are, but only in dairy, I mind you. 3NOP has not been studied yet in beef cattle production at all. And so not at all. There's a few studies that have been done in Canada, but we, we need to certainly make that, ele- that element of 3NOP more robust. But it is certainly more robust and further along in the research pipeline than seaweed or algae at this point. So can you talk about what this is? Because I don't, I was not even aware of it, which I don't know if I'm under a uh, methane rock, but I was like, oh, what is this new thing they're talking about here? And like you said, it has been even maybe studied longer than the seaweed. Yeah, so I'm I'm not a 3NOP expert, so I'll first caveat with that. But it is a feed additive that has been studied predominantly in dairy systems. And they see upwards of 30% or more reduction in methane when they're feeding it. And more importantly, they see some performance enhancers. So I think they see milk fat actually increasing, if I'm remembering this right. Now, historically, I work predominantly in beef spaces, but they are seeing performance gains on the dairy side. One question I had as you're like researching this, do you team up then with like a dairy, a feedlot, like how, I mean, you were talking about the sheer amount of numbers that you need. And obviously that's not necessarily feasible for a university, like take on, you know, 250 head of cattle at any given moment just to like research is that. So how do you have like working relationships then with like farmers, ranchers, producers in Colorado? Yeah, great question. So on the beef side, we actually do have research facilities to accommodate those numbers of head. And I can talk about that. On the dairy side, we CSU does not have a dairy research herd. And so that is exactly what we do. We partner with dairies in Colorado. Thankfully, Weld County, which is a huge dairy dairy county in Colorado, is just an adjoining county straight next to, to Colorado State. I actually live in Weld County. That's how close the counties are. So we are able to develop strategic partnerships with dairies. And we've had producers actually, dairy producers, reach out to us and say, when the technology is ready, I would give you an entire barn as a treatment and an entire barn as a control. And they're not specifying that it would be 3NUP, for example. They're saying when any technology is ready, we, we will be there as your partners. But one of the things our team cares deeply about is 
getting the technology to a point that we feel comfortable implementing the technology at a barn level in a commercial dairy herd where that producer, like we want to be certain there is going to be no challenges from a profitability, animal health, or welfare perspective when we are executing these dairy projects that we will likely execute at that scale. The beef conversation is a little bit different for us. And since May, we will have built the largest research facility in the country to do this kind of work. And we can house 300 head at one time in confinement. And we subsample a total of 240 head from those 300 head to actually measure methane. And that number actually works really well for us. We also have a grazing pivot which allows us to do intensive grazing work at the same facility as our feed yard. And one of the things that we are really excited about is tracking that carbon all the way through the beef system from a measurement reporting and verification standpoint and trying to get these carbon markets to work, right? Because we they're really challenging in beef. For, and they're very challenging in every animal agriculture species, but they're going to be even more challenging in beef because of the number of times that the animal moves from an ownership perspective. So an animal in the beef production world will change hands on average five times from owner to owner to owner. And so we want to be able to track carbon separately from the animal. So one of the only ways to do that is to prove it out in a system that's completely connected. So the other thing I think that kind of the whole conversation, like stepping back for a bigger picture and hopefully you can give a statement on this if you if you want to. But I do think it speaks to the complexities of like just doing research in general. I think there's a lot of people that, well, again, if we're going to like, you know, extreme far like activists or the other, you know, people pointing fingers, it's like, it's just not easy to do this research. And I think one of the important things you pointed out is like the cost. I mean, there's a lot of important things, but that cost number and with Frank, you know, recently Dr. Mittloner coming under fire for like outside funding. I just think there needs to be more awareness that like, if we want to get places in agriculture understanding, I think people need to be more accepting and understanding of like what it takes from a dollar standpoint, you know, to to really do this research and how like it is critical to have funding, whether that's from an ag, I mean, ag's going to care the most about it. So it makes sense that it's going to be coming from an ag. But I feel like even if you had, you know, large food corporations, people get upset that like Hershey's is funding it. Like there's just so much emotion around like funding of experimentation and research. And I just don't, I think there needs to be more conversation awareness. Like it has to happen. There's no, no feasible way to do it, you know, regardless of. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. And I think one of the one of the real challenges is the lack of funding for research more broadly. So there's an incredible lack of research dollars that is coming from the federal government. If you pare down what the federal federal government is giving in terms of agriculture research, we're some we're one of the most underfunded countries across the globe. So it is funding this work is really challenging. Measuring methane from an animal is expensive, very expensive to do. You know, we're trying to measure a a molecule and there's been very little funding coming from federal sources. And so that doesn't leave many other sources besides sources that might be industry funded or food companies or those sorts of things. Thank you for sharing more about that. I feel like on that note, I kind of want to go a little bit into some of the differences in like raising beef cattle. I feel like right now there is 
a big movement of like how good animal protein is for you. Like Natalie and I see it all the time, but then within the animal protein, I feel like there's some division between like the regenerative grass finished and like grain finished or being in feedlots. Like people that are pro animal protein may be like against feedlots still. And I would love to hear you kind of touch on maybe the pros and cons of those different systems. I know Natalie and I are both like big food choice advocates and under like, we believe in like, the need for both of those kind of systems. So maybe just touch a little bit about what you see, what research you're seeing being done out there about those different types of beef grazing systems. Yeah, absolutely. So I agree. Food choice is the most important thing. And we are so fortunate, right, to live in a place where we have food choice. And I think that both systems have opportunities to to improve, right? And and again, to your point, both have I always say both have pros. I try not to focus so much on on cons. But when we think about grass finished systems, you know, I think one of the 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 neat things about that is that from an emotional perspective, many consumers feel more connected to them and they may be more a part of their local community, for example. So you may be able to to buy a grass finished animal from from a rancher or a farmer themselves if they have the ability to get that animal processed at a USDA facility and get it inspected. And so I think that that's a the really unique attribute. And then hopefully the majority of the dollar that that consumer is spending is coming back to the, the producer themselves. So there may be a really strong economic component to that particular system to see it all the way through to grass finished. One of the things that I think people don't think about or don't remember about more traditional beef production is that that animal is grass finished or grass fed for the majority of their life, right? So the same rancher who may grass finish another animal has cows and heifers and those animals stay, the calves might stay with them until weaning, for example, and then they're going to sell those calves at weaning. So it's a little bit different of an economic model actually for the producer themselves. And that's usually the way a producer is evaluating it, right? It's not necessarily from a producer's perspective, better or worse for the environment. It's what fits their business model generally is how, is how a producer's thinking about it. From that standpoint, after the animal's weaned, it might go to a stalker operator where it will still be on grass, or in some systems, it might graze corn stalks, right, which is a byproduct of corn production. And as we know, from a regenerative standpoint, has tremendous benefits to that particular row crop agriculture, the integration of cattle into that system. And most traditionally, those are stalker animals because the producer in that case can own the animal for a very short time in the winter. And that works typically for their, again, for their business model. After that phase, the animal would go into finishing. And, you know, one of the things I think that we oftentimes miss from a finishing perspective is that 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 sector is really the reason that the U.S. can provide beef to everybody here, right, who eats beef at, at the at the level that they choose to eat it at and globally. Because strictly from a landmass perspective, we don't have enough land to grass finish the number of animals we send to harvest every year, right? Which ends up in that in that high quality protein that, that we love in the United States. And you know, those finishing animals from a methane perspective, their methane is reduced by almost half in comparison to an animal that is eating grass. And that's just because of the fiber differences. So the 
the same conversation we had about dairy versus feedlot diets. It's even more extreme, of course, in grazing diets, higher fiber, more methane, those methanogens are working harder. In a feedlot, those are, those are minimized. And even when you put the carbon footprint of feed production in there, it is still the smallest sector when we think about greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, we study both. We study grazing systems. We study feedlot systems. We study dairy systems. We think everybody is, frankly, doing a great job. And we look for ways to innovate uh, for each of those systems to make the system better and to be prepared for what consumers expect five to 10 years kind of down the path. But again, I'm a big advocate for food choice, and I'm very proud of all the production systems that producers are in in the United States. So Tara and I go on other podcasts, obviously, kind of like you're doing on ours. And we have been going on some more like I I would classify them as like regenerative kind of in that space of like, you know, highly focused on those issues and way I feel like it's never accepted or taken over well when we always kind of point out that like feedlot cattle do have like if you're going to go from like a number standpoint, they do have like the better like footprint. But the opposite side of the coin, you know, is then we're not obviously like soil health comes into conversation. And so I feel like it's just always such a tough thing to talk about because there's just so many things to evaluate. And there's just so many different things, you know, really that to consider when it comes to the animal and the diet. And so, you know, Tara and I will say it over and over again, but it, I think one of the things that frustrates us most is when people try and put it into a box, like, you know, traditional conventional is bad, grass fed is good and important and healthy, or, you know, whatever it is, organic, you know, spray, like, whatever it is, it's like, there's just these levels of complexity that we really need to have more conversations on and really bring into like food, like food dialogue really needs to be having some of these more complex issues instead of like, just dropping neatly into like little boxes, I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think too, when when we think about like when you said, for example, grass grass finished is better for the environment. Well, not if that land is being overgrazed, right? So it's yeah. it's it's less about the prescription of traditional versus grass finished or organic or regenerative or non regenerative or whatever, right? And more about is the individual producing the food because that's what this is about. And those individuals have to do it in a very complex system where they're dealing with the health of the animal and the welfare of the animal and the health of the landscape and the health of the soil and da, 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 da. Are, are, are they managing it with these trade-offs and this holistic mindset? And if they are, they're probably doing a really good job within their own system and within their own business model and the constraints that they have, whether it's labor constraints, whether it's location constraints, whether, you know, whatever, whatever those constraints are. But I agree, right? Anybody can be a bad actor within any Mm -hmm. system and we need to appreciate and applaud those that are doing such a good job within the systems that they operate. I twisted my husband's arm to come on a podcast with me and they, kind of, I don't remember the exact question or how they worded it, but basically they were kind of like, what does sustainability mean to you? Or like, what are you, you know, what are you doing on your operation to be sustainable? Like kind of that direction. And he said kind of what you said, which I think is so important. You know, Luke said, you know, my job as a rancher to be the most sustainable I can be is not to implement a certain practice because it's sustainable. It is to take a look at my environment is to take a look at the land we have, you know, the amount of grass on it, the amount of animals running, the type of animals running, like everything that goes into 
you know, like our little ecosystem on our operation and make the best decision for individually for myself and what we're doing on that operation to be sustainable. And I think that's so important, again, that like just because someone in Georgia is doing this or someone in Texas is doing this and that's working really well for them, it it's not going to it just we just can't copy repeat that across the nation and be like, oh, we're sustainable. You know, like there's a lot that goes into production decisions to be sustainable. And I think, again, the more conversation we kind of have around that, like we are actually being really sustainable, just looks different than what another operation sustainable looks like. That's absolutely right. And it's our job as scientists, and this is our dream, that you, everybody would have a different menu of options that would be place-based and meaningful to to you, whether you're on a cow-calf operation, whether you're in a feedlot, whether you're in a dairy, and no matter where you are in the United States at first. And then if we really do a good job, we'll be able to expand that globally as well. Awesome. Well, Natalie, do you have any other final questions? I feel like we've kept you longer than we told you when you first jumped on this podcast. Wrap this up. I think maybe we could just talk about like where you kind of like where we're at, you know, I mean, we've talked about feed additives, maybe like just let, you know, everyone who's tuning in know kind of where we're at right now when it comes to like, you know, methane, carbon footprints, like, you know, beef and dairy, like where are we at as an industry? Kind of where are we heading? Like, what does that look like in your perspective? Yeah. So I've never seen more momentum around the topic, which is really exciting. And I think we're learning a lot, but but I don't I don't want anybody to think we're out of the out of the weeds yet, because I think we we believe we're learning what we should have learned five to 10 years ago. Right. And just from a momentum and a funding standpoint and a technology standpoint, frankly, too. Right. We had to be able to be able to measure methane in all of these different environments. I still feel like we're we're five to 10 years behind where we need to be. But with the momentum, with the excitement that is coming, not just from scientists, but from our industry partners, that's that's the biggest indicator, right, that hopefully we're very close to coming up with not only better best baselines, which we desperately need, but also better ways to measure, report, and verify. And then we will we will get we will figure out the technology that has scalability and can reduce emissions from a total emission standpoint. Thank you for sharing that. I think Natalie and I would echo that sentiment that we feel like there is a ton of momentum right now just in the animal protein space and whether that's sustainability or the nutrition, it it just feels like something is different right now than it's ever felt before, which is exciting. And it'll be interesting to look back in the next five, 10 years and see where we're at. And maybe like you said, you know, you, you wish we were a decade ahead. I wonder if this momentum will make hopefully like kind of push us forward and get us to where we, we should be and where we want to be. So thank you for coming on and sharing with our audience today. I know they will find a ton of value in this. I know I've taken away a lot of things. I've like, as you were talking, I was like, Ooh, that is, that's got to be an advocacy post for me. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great to great to see you again, Tara. Nice to meet you, Natalie. Yeah. And thanks to everyone who tuned in today and and enjoyed today's episode. If you guys did, please be sure to tell a friend, share it to your social channels, or take a second to leave us a review in the podcasting app. If you want more during the week, you can always follow us on Instagram at discoverag underscore or at our personal pages at Tara Vanderdusen at Natalie Kavork, and as well as our YouTube Discover Ag podcast. And we will see you guys next week.